morning, everyone. John, I wish I was up in that orchestra right now. Beautiful music. I want to say thank you to Pastor Trailer for allowing me the opportunity to break open the Word of God before you and to hear what God has for us this morning. I also want to welcome those at the Warrington campus. I want you to know that I got to visit your campus three years ago when I was on a sabbatical and had a great opportunity to meet many of you and what a delight it is. And I will say I drive by your church building every day, twice a day, on my way to work way out here. We live in the Perdido area, and so I see your church building there often with the light beaming for the glory of Jesus Christ. I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, if you would. Acts chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 31. Now, please know, Ethan and I did not consult together. I had several people talk to me and say, did you guys connive together? I said, no. Ethan is his own man. I am my own. And so we both worked separately, and I have no clue what he's going to say, and he has no clue how I'm going to attack this passage. But in Acts chapter 9, in this whole section, I'm titling this Ministry in a Hostile Environment. If you haven't noticed that we are living in a hostile environment, you haven't been awake We are being bombarded daily by Satan's attack at what we know as biblical truth, and he's attacking it relentlessly. How are we going to minister in this kind of hostile environment? Acts chapter 9 gives us how we are to approach this. I'm going to read verses 1 to 31 during which time this will be the only part of the service where these words are infallible, inerrant, inspired, and authoritative. What is not inspired is my attack into this passage. I will assure you we are bringing out of this passage what Luke was striving to convey to us. But that part is not inspired. What often happens after I get done preaching back home in Philadelphia, I'd always have one person that liked it and three persons that always said, you should have said it this way. So I'm sure that will be the case as well here. But as I read verses 1 to 31, what I want you to do is sometimes we just kind of let it go over our heads, and, but what I want you to do is feel the passion of what Luke is writing. You have an individual in this passage who is extremely religious, very zealous, and he thought he stood on truth, but he did not. You also have a man who is a believer who is now told to go to that zealous individual who was killing Christians 
and to lay your hands on him and pray for him. And I want you to sense the comedic realm of what Ananias does to tell the Lord what the Lord apparently did not know. And then you're going to see two types of people with a passion, those who are believers who don't trust Saul, and those who are unbelievers who want to kill Saul. You follow along. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. It'll be up on the screen. Acts 9.1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas, look for a man from Tarsus, and by the way, his name is Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately... He proclaimed Jesus in a synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 
When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through the opening uh, in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we open up this word, we realize without the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, we will not get this. But I pray for that powerful work of the Holy Spirit to open hearts to receive the Word of God, as Luke has declared. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you a question. Don't answer out loud, please. Is the church supposed to be seeking to be relevant? May I propose to you this morning, the church is never to seek to be relevant. It must seek to be biblical. We must get our marching orders from God's word and his word alone. Do we live in a hostile world? Paul told us we would. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. It even says in the next couple verses, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, and abusive. Does that describe our world? Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Have you ever noticed all the movies today are about superpowers, spiritual things? We don't need God because we have Thor. We don't need God because Spider-Man is going up and down the streets of New York City keeping us safe. We deny its power. Jesus even said at the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 12, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. This pandemic has caused a lot of people to grow cold 
towards the things of God, towards the gathering of the saints into God's house. How did the church go from persecution to peace? Verse 31. How is it possible? How could it be that God brought from persecution peace and multiplication? How is it possible? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, when Peter made that great confession, thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Upon this confession, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will never prevail. That's what I hold to. That is the rock that we all should stand on. But how is it possible? I see three things in breaking this down. Three things that teach us the way to fruit bearing. How is it that we can bear fruit so that we can see an increase in our growth as believers and an increase in the church of Jesus Christ and in our local church, Olive Baptist? I see three acts of Jesus Christ. There are three things that Jesus Christ is doing. Sometimes we don't know that he is, and we think it's all up to us. And we get ourselves all worked up, and we try and strive, and, and we go after it, and we almost get mean-spirited. But there's three acts that Jesus is doing. Number one, I'm calling this the intervention of Jesus Christ. Flip back a couple pages to chapter 7. Pastor already covered this. In verse 58, Acts 7, 58, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Where are you, Lord? Why aren't you protecting your church? Why are you allowing this man who's very zealous in keeping the law to wreak havoc to the point where people were leaving their houses and dispersing throughout? Do you remember the key theme of the book of Acts in chapter 1? Verse 8. This is a great platform. I can do a lot of walking and keep these guys on their toes. But you shall receive power. When? After the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem. 
in Judea, in Samaria, and what's the last part? Uttermost parts of the earth. That is exactly what God is doing. God is sovereignly, providentially working because it got too comfortable in Jerusalem. He allowed the persecution by Saul to come in to disperse his church because wherever the church went, what did they take with them? The gospel message. Does God only work when the environment is okay and receptive to God's word? No. God works in all environments, even in ours today. God is working. Here at Olive Baptist, you're seeing some of the waves of God working, and there's more to come because there's an intervention that Jesus Christ is working, and he's got his man picked. And it isn't the man you and I would have picked. But Galatians chapter 1, Paul alludes to the fact that God chose him before he was in his mother's womb to preach the gospel. How does Paul, Saul, go from holding to a Jewish religion, strictly, Philippians 3, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a keeper of the law, one that was separated as a Pharisee, flawless, and yet he came to the point where he saw all of that religious stuff as rubbish and held on to the righteous standing that Jesus Christ offers to him. Acts, 1 verses, Acts 9 verses 1 through 9 teaches us what is Jesus doing behind the scenes. Saul is on his way to kill Christians, and God is on his way to intervene. I love it. A bright light, chapter 26 says, brighter than the noonday sun, shines on Saul. And God calls, Jesus calls to him, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, and what is more of a formal response of greeting, who can you imagine? I mean, these lights are pretty bright, but that was nothing compared to what Saul found. Who are you, Lord, sir? I know you're something more than what I've ever experienced before. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Do you know that when someone attacks you for standing up for Christ, they are not attacking you, they attack the one you belong to, and that's Jesus Christ. I am who I am because Jesus has chosen me. That is our identity. Jesus so identifies with the ones that Saul was killing that he says, you are persecuting me. I find that staggering. I and you, you and me. We belong to Jesus Christ. And when you touch one who belongs to Christ, you're touching Christ himself. That's how connected we are. Please get out of your head that your identity is your job position. Get out of your head that your identity is your economic status. 
get out of your head that your identity is in your health. You have one identity, and that's Christ. Have you ever trusted in Jesus Christ and he becomes your identity? We go from Stephen, who was stoned, to Philip, who is the evangelist, the deacon who is running to Samaria because a revival is breaking out, and then to the Ethiopian eunuch, and sandwiched between that and the gospel going to the Gentiles by means of Peter, we have the gateway of chapter 9 that opens up to the uttermost parts of the world. That's how God works. He is slowly beginning to reveal what his intentions are. And that intervention in Saul's life is only the gateway to what he is going to do because we don't pick up about Saul until we get into the latter part of chapter 11 and then chapter 13, we see him on his missionary journeys. And he ends up in Rome in prison. The intervention of Jesus Christ. What is Jesus doing behind the scenes? A whole lot more than what you may see. He is at work. I am leaning heavily on his sovereign power and control. Sometimes you got to turn the news off, don't you? Oh my, oh my. Because it looks like Satan is winning, but he is not. Hold on to the fact that Satan is a pawn under God's control. So, the intervention of Christ. He gets Saul's attention. Chapter 22, verse 10, Saul responds, and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Good advice. When God calls you to do something, if he calls you to speak up in an airplane next to a reprobate, if he calls you to speak up next to a person who you're afraid, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that is what Saul experienced. Salvation has turned a persecutor and transformed his life to a preacher of the gospel, which brings me to the second act of Jesus Christ. The investment of Jesus Christ. We see that in verses 10 through 19. Now, here it's answering this question. Who does Jesus use to accomplish his mission? Well, I know it's, it's the guy that gets up here and preaches every week. That's who God uses. No, he isn't doing just that. Everyone who has called on the name of Jesus Christ for salvation, God is called into mission for him at work, on the streets, as you drive, as you walk, as you shop. He has called us to mission. Verse 10, he introduces to us a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now, chapter 22 Verse 12, he says, he was a devout man according to the law, 
and well-respected and revered. But he basically is a nobody. An important task as going to Saul, who is a persecutor, and laying hands on him and seeing the Holy Spirit delivered to Saul and filling Saul is an important task. We must send the best person out there. Who's the most dynamic person that can accomplish the job? And Jesus says, I know the guy. It's Ananias. Who? That's how he was known. Who? Ananias. Let's send him. What, then, what can he do? He's my vessel to send. So Ananias, such an important vessel, says, wait a minute, Lord. I don't think you understand. This is the guy killing Christians. And I know that kind of got lost in the translation. Uh, I can't go to him. Go. And notice what Jesus calls Saul. He is a chosen vessel. I chose him out of the vessels that I could use. I chose Saul, who will represent my name and will suffer for my sake, that's the one I chose. So Ananias goes, he obeys the Lord, and Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ invests in people. I asked a question when I was teaching back home in the Christian day school that our church had to middle school students. And I said, all right, I want to know, which is more valuable? A voice from heaven saying on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son. Or the scriptures being read saying, this is my beloved son. What do you think they answered? Middle schoolers. Well, the voice. The voice from heaven. But you know how many people would have gotten it wrong if it was a one-time voice from heaven? Peter says in 2 Peter 1, but we have a more sure word of prophecy, and it's the word of God, which is far better than God speaking with a loud voice. But God takes the word in your hand and in your mouth and says, go. I have a task. You are a vessel for me. Are you ready? Well, Lord, send me anywhere but only in a Cadillac. All right? No. Wherever God sends you, he goes before you and he goes with you, and you have the equipment and resources to speak for his name. What a privilege that is. That's the investment of Christ. Now, very quickly, the third act of Jesus Christ is the intention of Christ. How does he get the job done? How does he accomplish his work in hostile times? In verse 21 and verse 26, we see the hostility from within. 
had a youth worker back home who said to me, man, it must be nice to work as a pastor of a church where everybody loves each other. He says, I work in an environment that is hostile, and people pick on me. And I said, you really think that all Christians love each other and are kind to each other? He says, yeah, I do. He started working with our youth. One year later, after he got beat up, he says, oh my goodness, I'll never think that way again. But you have hostility within. The hostility within in those two verses talk about how they didn't trust Saul. Now, you got to be honest here. Who's this Glenn Jago guy? Why is he preaching? What credentials does he have? It's not a matter of the credentials. It's a matter of the call of God in the life of the man proclaiming the word. It's the call of God of the one who takes the word. Even if they don't trust you, you bring them the word of God. And then there's trials from without. I don't know if any of us have ever been sought to be killed by those you have shared the gospel with, but they did with Saul. In verse 20. 3 and 24 and verse 29, and they sought to kill him. What is the message that we are to take? What are we to do with the message? It says in verse 20, would you look at it? And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. This son of God passage is talking about his role as the Davidic son that would sit forever on the eternal throne of the Davidic line. That is his role. Jesus, in John 20, verse 31, says, And these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. Both of them together. You see, we are to preach that Jesus Christ is the one ruling and reigning and will, in the end, rule and reign over the new heavens and the new earth. And that will take place. Paul, Saul, instantly learned who Christ was. He was missing an integral component of what he was holding on to in his faith. He was holding on to what he can do, and yet God changed him so that he began to preach Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah, verse 22, and the Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior. That's the message. You can share your testimony, but share Christ. Preach that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through him. What's the method? What is the method of what he does? He proclaims publicly. He confounds through demonstration. He's a great debater. 
He associates with those who he is ministering to. That's the method that God calls us to. You can't associate with believers sitting at home only. You've got to come out and associate with believers. That's the method that God works to bring fruit. You touching lives. I saw Eric Schaefer down here. Years ago when I went through a really tough time, here in Pensacola. He encouraged me. He saw what I was going through and he said a word that encouraged me. Man, that's what we need. That comes from associating with. And then he was affirmed by Barnabas. Nobody wanted to touch Saul, but Barnabas puts his arm around him and says, you trust me, trust him. I've seen what God is doing. One of the things that really it can really be a bother is the fact that when you see people and you see they're going through a tough time, go up to them and pray with them. Put your arm around them. Encourage them. Oh, what can I offer? Just a voice, a, a, a listening ear. That's what Barnabas did. He was the son of encouragement pulled alongside. That's the method that God uses. He uses you to touch lives. He uses you to touch your pastor's life. You think he willy-nilly walks through life with bed of roses? No. Every pastor is under constant attack. Go up and offer a word of encouragement. That's Barnabas. Paul also spoke fearlessly, boldly. He spoke persistently. That's the method. We preach Jesus Christ. The method is to constantly talk strongly, boldly, alongside of other believers, that's the method that Jesus used. Now, what is the meaning of all that? We come back to verse 31 once again. Verse 31 highlights how the whole book of Acts unfolds. In chapter 6, verse 7, and the word of God increased. Chapter 9, verse 31, and the church multiplied. Chapter 12, verse 24, and the church increased and the word of God increased and spread. In Acts chapter 19, verse 20, and the word of God increased. How does it do that? It does it by understanding there is an active role and there is a passive role. You and I have an active role. And God has an active role. Don't confuse the two. You do your part because God is doing his part. You take the message because God is going before you. Let me leave you with three challenges. For you that are deeply religious, you're searching for answers, you're trying to find answers everywhere, and you're holding on to things that have nothing to do with the truth of God's word. This is the only absolute truth. Come to Jesus Christ. Only he can transform your life. Don't just be religious and dead. Come to Jesus Christ and have the resurrection life living inside of you. Believer, I want you to think of that loved one, that friend, who you've been praying for for 30 years. Keep praying for them. Pray for them. 
Look what Jesus did to Saul. He took the hardest of hearts and transformed it. Believer, finally, get out of yourself. Stop looking inwardly. Look out here. There's a mission field at your workplace. There's a mission field in your family. There's a mission field even in church here. Start encouraging one another. When we are doing our part, Jesus, we know, is doing his part, what will happen to Olive Baptist Church if we do our part and let Jesus do his part? Verse 31, it will multiply. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful insight that Luke gave us about how to live in a hostile world. May the Holy Spirit take these words that are much to learn and dry them deep into the heart of those listening to your word. Thank you, Lord. I pray that you would save that one who's holding on to religion, but not Christ. May they abandon their religion and trust in Jesus Christ. I pray for the believer that he would, she would continue to pray for their lost loved ones and that we would encourage one another daily. We give this all to you in Jesus' precious name.